MSW Media. So, Renato, what's the biggest news this week? This week, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Let's start with our favorite lawyer of all time, Rudy Giuliani. And all I have, my, my main response to this topic is just my cringe face. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, I just did not, if you asked me at any point this week, up until the moment that that lawsuit dropped, that Rudy Giuliani would have the biggest legal news of the week, I would have probably bet my house that that was not the case. We literally had a verdict uh, that found that Trump committed sexual abuse. Um, very serious, right? You've got... um Santos gets indicted for all sorts of criming, right? I mean, he's, it's like, what, what crime didn't the guy commit? Um, and that, or allegedly, I should say, what allegedly commit. Um, we got the Durham report is finally released after years of fanfare. And the biggest legal news is Rudy's on tape and he's on tape like, I, I mean, it's just the the sort of first of all, the offenses are so vile. Vile is really the only word. I mean, it's. I, I don't even have words. Like I couldn't. I, I'll be honest with you. Like I read the initial parts that kind of summarized the the stuff, and I was like, I, I can't really get into every single detail that's here because it's disgusting. Disgusting. Shocking. Shocking. I mean, he raped yes, her, right? I mean, that's repeatedly. the, uh, and, and she's got a lot of this on tape. Like, yeah. I mean, she couldn't, like, she couldn't have her phone on her at all times. Okay. But like a lot. Like, I mean, she was basically recording him nonstop. And some of the stuff he was saying was crazy. Um, and then, by the way, like, as a side note, you know, he's selling pardons with Donald Trump and splitting the proceeds. Like, that's just like a throw in line. I mean, so let's unpack this a little bit. Um, this is a lawsuit brought by an employee of Rudy Giuliani, Noel Dumphy, who is bringing a civil lawsuit under the same statute that E. Jean Carroll filed. Um, this is an act for adult survivors of sexual assault and abuse. And I forget how much in damages she's asking for. I mean, several million, 10 million. She deserves a lot. So if, if, if she can prove all of this, it's, she deserves a lot. She deserves a lot in damages. Yeah. So essentially Rudy Giuliani, according to her lawsuit, offered her employment, offered her to play, pay her an enormous sum of money. I think it was $1 million and to represent her in some legal matters with her ex-partner with whom she had ongoing problems because she's basically a survivor of 
domestic abuse from that relationship. Um, He then tells her that because of his own divorce, he's going to have to defer payment to her until a later point in time. So there's this weird way in which she has this kind of um, sort of Damocles hanging over her, right? Like, in other words, he's he's kind of holding this out as something that she needs to stay in this relationship for because she she's going to get paid. She's getting this legal representation. If she leaves, then, you know, um, all of that presumably will, will go away. Um, and it sounds like pretty soon after her employment begins, he essentially begins sexually assaulting her. Um, she says that he is he was drinking at all times of the day um, and basically demanded sexual satisfaction from her at all times of the day. Initially, I think she wants to go report it, and he essentially says, nothing will happen to me because I'm friends with the president. Um, and so this continues on. And then, as you note, she is also privy to all of his communications that he's having, um, including, you know, with with Trump. Um, and somewhere in this, as you note, he drops to her that he and Trump are selling pardons for $2 million a pop and sharing the proceeds between them. Yeah, just as like a side note, it's just like throw it in there. Like, well, by the way. I don't even know where to start. And, and but it's sort of like it is kind of lost in the shuffle because, as I said in the beginning, she's on she's got him on tape. So like she'll be like he's has this recorded conversation saying all sorts of like really heinous things that we're not going to repeat. And you're just like, oh, my God. I mean, this he makes I mean, I, I always thought Bill O'Reilly was like kind of the, one of the sickest people with remember when he was on tape with his sexual harassment of his employee. And this is yep. just this makes Bill O'Reilly look like a saint. I mean, this is, and she she alleges that he is making racist and misogynistic and anti-Semitic comments all the time too, which I think are also on tape. Yeah, and just I just to be very clear, I mean, obviously, this is an exploitive situation, okay, and it's obviously sexual harassment and all sorts of things. You know, you could put all those labels, but on top of that, just to be crystal clear, she's alleging forcible rape, like violent like a violent crime here. Okay. She's, she, the allegations are that he's literally forcing her physically forcing her to, to have intercourse, you know, or oral sex and so on with him. So this Bernardo, this seems to have happened like within the last several years. Is she really beyond the statute of limitations for criminal charges? I would think that the NYPD would have to investigate this. At this point, I think that they would. Uh, now, just to be fair to them, uh, you know, in on the federal side, we often were, you know, investigating things that we didn't have brought to our attention. I would see something in the Wall Street Journal, and we would, uh, you know, inquire about it. I, you know, I, you know, uh, inquire with the SEC and get a file open, that sort of thing. That's different than the situation that most state. Uh, prosecutors find themselves in and obviously police because unless an officer sees something in front of herself, ha- you know, happening like, okay, she sees somebody get assaulted. You know, they are, you know, generally very busy trying to prosecute 
all and and you know bring to justice all of the uh, crimes that are occurring in a particular jurisdiction, whereas the feds can sit back and pick and choose and say, oh, we'll let the state handle this one. Like the state is kind of usually buried in cases. So, you know, I had had a, a sexual assault matter that I had handled in New York and, you know, it was hard to get the, the Texas attention because it's just, they have a lot on their plate. So I, 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 I'm not sure that they're going to pick up the phone and do this, but I certainly think if it was reported. There's no question that they would look into it. It's within the statute of limitations. So I guess kind of the broader, you know, I think the broader question that a lot of people are going to be asking is, will the feds look into this, right? I just said a moment ago that the, you know, that pardon allegation, of course, that's a federal crime, right? That's trading an official act, it's just a pardon, for a private benefit, which is money. <laughs> so that is just bribery, theft of honest services, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, that's, that's clearly illegal. And the question is, will the feds investigate that? I don't know is the, is the honest answer. And does she have that on tape? I don't recall. It wasn't clear. Yeah, to it me. wasn't clear to me either. So what was interesting, and I think this is, you know, she's got a lot of things on tape to her credit. I mean, she's pressing record way more than uh, the average person would do. Uh, obviously, it must be easier when, you know, the person you're taping is completely drunk all the time. Um, but, you know, so she has a lot on tape. But of course, she doesn't have everything on tape, right? If he, when he's forcing her to perform oral sex on him. She doesn't have, you know, a, a phone recorder or a videotape, you know, recording that, it, which is understandable. Similarly, she hasn't recorded maybe every conversation about pardons. She does say, and I guess this is a separate point, she has access to all of his emails, including, was it like something like 17,000? That the number streaks in my mind, but thousands of emails between, you know, him and Trump and all sorts of other lawyers, Mark Bucasey and other, you know, lawyers who are involved in folks in the Trump world. Um, that That's a very significant issue. I mean, frankly, uh, among Giuliani's other problems, the you know, not having um, uh, a very good handle on and properly protecting uh, client confidences is sort of a separate issue that he has, but she may very well have evidence of what she's claiming. But I think it remains to be seen because, you know, we have uh, often, you know, allegations are made, you know, Trump makes allegations all the time in lawsuits. Lots of people make allegations in lawsuits and they are what they are. Anyone can make an allegation and say, say, say something in a lawsuit. In fact, because you can't get sued for defamation for what you allege in lawsuits, it's often free reign. But here where there's recordings, um, you know, or at least there appear to be, she's, and she says that there's recordings and there's quotes around things that Giuliani's saying uh, that are pretty precise. Um, it, it has a lot of credibility here. And so I think this story, the reason I think you were right, Asha, that this should be the first story is, you know, if there are legs here, and it sure looks like there are, I mean, the allegations are incredibly serious. And who could have imagined this back in 2001, right? When Giuliani was on the cover of Time Magazine and everyone thought he was, you know, superhero um you know this is unbelievable he's essentially if if the allegations are true he is a violent criminal yes and the selling of pardons i mean look we've already have the allegations that trump was dangling pardons in the russia investigation in order to entice people to remain silent we also have had 
these weird, um, you know, solicitations, reports of solicitations for pardons come up in a lot of different contexts. Do you remember when Matt Gates was going to Roger Stone right. when he was under investigation? So like the the weaponization of or kind of the the use of the pardon power by Trump as a way to benefit himself either to shield himself from criminal liability, to ensure loyalty from people, um now to possibly make money is just, you know, this is sort of uh, it it's not astonishing, I would say, but it really gets to how much he abused his power. Um, you know, even apart from whether this allegation is true, we we know he and he, you know re- more recently he claimed that he was going to pardon all the January sixth um, people if he becomes president again. And you know, if this allegation that he was actually selling them, that there was bribery. And I think you said this would also be theft of honest services. I think the question is not only, you know, whether the feds will look into it, but I mean, how could you allow him to assume the office again? And frankly, it made me think that this is sort of a reason, this is an argument in favor of being able to impeach presidents even after they leave office which you know because things that things may not come to light until later um you know you may not have time to uncover evidence of abuse of power or actual high crimes until after the person leaves office i'm not saying it's going to happen in this case i mean but it it is an argument for it yeah i mean it it really makes the most sense when someone like trump loses after their first term and is planning to run for a second right otherwise you know, I'm not sure the United States Senate is going to spend its time, you know, stop everything, you know, for, you know, some an ex-president, um, you know, whatever. Jimmy Carter did something. Let's stop the presses. Right. But, you know, I think here it's obviously very important. I, I, I think one thing that I wonder, you know, Shannon, I don't know. I don't think we know this is, you know, is this something the Justice Department might pick up at some point you know, on that end of things? And, you know, it's interesting. I thought to myself, if this was like a, a let's say a clerk at the pardon attorney's office is like, you know what? I could totally get stuff stamped, you know, it says pardon or whatever. Or I can get it in front of the president in exchange for a million dollars or $2 million. You know, would that be investigated? The answer is absolutely. Um, if that was, if the allegations about that came out, that would definitely get looked at. So why not here? And I think, uh, you know, opening an investigation into Trump is a big deal. And it's I think it's very apparent that Garland is concerned about optics with the Justice Department and its appearance of not being politicized. We can talk about that more when we get to the Durham report. Um, I think if this could get added to or was part of Jack Smith's ambit, that's one thing. Like if Jack Smith's like, hey, let's add this uh, to what I'm doing, I could see that happening. But otherwise, like, I don't know if I see Garland opening up an independent investigation into this when Trump is already under investigation for a number of other things. I think it depends on what what comes out. I mean, right now we have an allegation in a civil complaint. Um, If that's all there is, that she heard Giuliani say this, I don't I, I think I might agree with you, but. I think given the attention and we've got a lot of investigative reporting and who knows, you know, Lordy, there might be tapes right. and, you know, there might be other stuff that comes out. And I think at that point, I mean, there would come a, a point where I think he would have no choice but to if there were 
clear, articulable fact that suggested that he had actually used this power for financial gain. Yeah, I mean, if there is a if there's audio if of Trump discussing selling pardons for cash. You would like to think that that would disqualify him for the presidency uh, and no irrational person would ever support him. But of course, we know that's not the case. Certainly, you would think that a criminal investigation would be initiated at that point. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeyal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Asha, uh, I, I have to think if we were ranking our favorite people to talk about, Rudy would be high on that list, but George Santos has got to be up there, too. I mean, he's, he's an entertaining character. Yes, he is up there, and I have to say, I tweeted this, and it's a, it's a good segue from Giuliani, because I said... I feel like in my bones, I feel like the George Santos saga will have as much entertainment value as the Four Seasons Total Landscaping debacle. Because it's so crazy. It's just so ridiculous. And he is so ridiculous. Like, I I mean, I I think he like he is suffering from something because I he does not seem to register what is actually going on. And I think believes that he can simply lie his way out of this. Like he's just like fake it till you make it all the way. So, yeah, I mean, George Santos reminds me. So I actually understand. I feel like I understand George Santos very, very well. Really? Because I spent many, many years of my life investigating fraud Mm -hmm. and getting to know those folks very well. Um, some more than I would like. Uh, one of them tried to put a hit on me one time, a fraudster. Um, but um, I also have represented people allegedly, you know, accused of committing fraud or allegedly engaged in fraud. So I understand the personality type well. Uh, George Santos is a fraudster, and fraudsters believe their own BS. They basically they've learned at a certain point in their lives that they can just sort of lie their way through things and they get really good at it and they understand how to manipulate people and they, there are never any consequences. They just do more and more and more. And I, to me, I think George Santos ends up in like 20 years as like uh, either a Netflix movie or a Hollywood movie where everyone's forgotten about Santos. Like you and I remember him. Okay. We're, we're at the nursing home in, a few, in 30 years or whatever. Um, but like no one else remembers Santos and everyone's like, do you, can you believe there was a congressman who actually was in office for X number of months before <laughs> he was uh, convicted? And, you know, he did, you know, he was crazy. There's some random fraudster lied his way and he'll tell his whole story and it'll be very entertaining to, you know, people in 2078 or something like that. It'll be like inventing Anna. Yeah. It'll just be like, wow. Except George Santos. He also reminds me of, uh, Clark Rockefeller. Do oh, you, do yeah. You know this story? Yeah. He reminds me completely of Clark Rockefeller, who, by the way, I remember from the original Unsolved Mysteries episode. 
But it's like, that's a great example, right? Like he's just walking everywhere. Yeah, I'm a Rockefeller and everyone just accepts that for what it is, right? Yeah. So let's just unpack this, uh, these charges real quick. Um, this, uh, there's basically three fraudulent schemes going on, um, in this set of charges. I expect that there will be more that come. So one was that Santos was essentially, uh, appropriating money that people were contributing to what they thought was a, uh, an organization for his campaign. And he was basically taking that money and using it for his own personal use, luxury things, clothes, cars, whatever. I would, I would say that, say that slightly differently. I mean, the, the allegation I think is that he defrauded them by tricking them into contributing to a company rather than to his campaign, falsely claiming it was going for the campaign. And he was get, having them contribute amounts that were far exceeded what they could have contributed. Right. right. Federally. So he had a company called Devolder. Inc. His real name. Yeah. And he had a person working for him who was actively also, he was directing to solicit these contributions. And these were huge contributions, like in the, you know, like $25,000 and things like that, like big donors that were coming. There's a great annotated um, New York Times article uh, or it, there's a New York Times piece that has an annotated indictment where the people who are just listed as contributor one or contributor two, they, they provide some background. Um, the second fraudulent scheme was that he was collecting unemployment benefits during COVID. He was like, it wasn't clear. I don't know. Like, it's in the title. Like if if if, if you're employed, you probably aren't going to qualify for unemployment benefits. Meanwhile, he voted against people getting unemployment benefits just like last week, I think, right right after this came out. Yeah, Mr. Santos would be best off saying as little as possible, but he can't help himself. Fraudsters always like to talk their ways out of things. Uh that's uh one of their downfalls. And I mean, he also I think said that you know, Congress's standards are so low. He said something to the effect that like, Congress's standards are so low that, you know, he exceeded them, right? Like something along those lines. It, it was just very revealing, I thought. And then the third fraudulent scheme was that he lied in his financial disclosures to the House of Representatives, where he weirdly overstated some income and then he omitted other income and the sources from it. So it's all very sketchy. And what's really strange is when you juxtapose this with the unemployment benefits, he was claiming unemployment benefits for the same time that he's disclosing to the House of Representatives that he was getting income. Yeah. Yeah. From certain sources and, and the amounts. I mean, it's just, it's so dumb. Well, fraudsters have to, you know, they usually have different sides of themselves that they're showing to different people. And I think you know, he wanted to portray himself as successful. Um, so that's why he had overstated at certain points that was in his interest. Then he realized, oh, no, I need to do the opposite. And so he anyways, he was trying to hide certain things. Yeah, what what a mess. That guy, uh, I think we all knew that that was this was, was going to end up somewhere like this. Uh, kudos to the Eastern District of New York team that put together charges so quickly. Um, I have to say this is one of the fastest prosecutions. Yeah. And kudos to the investigative reporters who were yes. quickly reporting on this as soon as he got elected, because I think that that was, to me, that was clearly what jump-started these 
federal investigations. And in many ways, the fact that he won is what ended up exposing him because had he lost and because no one was paying attention to him before he won. And if he had lost, I don't think anyone would have paid attention to him either. And he may have just like walked away and just started some other grip. Agree. I mean, agreed. If he had lost by, you know, a, a substantial margin, no one would have paid attention. I mean, I do wonder, you have to, I think, you know, I think the Democrats in that area need to ask themselves questions about how they were not able to uncover this with oppo research stuff mm-hmm. during the campaign, right? It would have, I think, uh, saved a lot of heartache uh, for folks if that had happened. Uh, but I, I think that um, you're right. The investigative journalists who, did, who uncovered this did uh, are directly responsible for this. I think otherwise this wouldn't have happened. And I think they also make it very, very difficult for Santos to defend himself because Santos, you know, the, the touchstone in a white collar case, which is usually, and they're usually fraud cases, is whether or not the defendant can take the stand. Okay. And a lot of times the defendant can because it's like, hey, it's some business, some businessman and, you know, he supposedly lied on when he signed some forms, but, you know, he's going to say, hey, I wasn't paying attention to what was on these forms or whatever. In a case like this, there's no way Santos could take the stand. He lied about so many things. He can't keep his story straight. And he's lied about all sorts of other stuff. So it's going to be very easy for prosecutors to trip him up. And they've got so the goods on him in so many different ways. So the fact that he can't take the stand essentially dooms him, I would say, in this case. It means that a guilty plea is going to happen. But usually in these fraudsters, speaking from experience, it happens like, you know, uh, four hours before the trial is about to start or something like that. After I've spent many, uh, many, many hours and weekends and sleepless nights preparing my witnesses and getting my exhibits together and writing my opening statement, that's usually when they decide to plead guilty. Yeah. And it's not even like the evidence against him here are other witnesses. They, you know, which of course there will be, but it's really a paper trail, right? Like these are actual transactions. Like he's moving money from, I mean, this is, this is the wire fraud that he is moving money from this company to which people made contributions, believing they were from his campaign, into his own bank account. Um, oh, yeah. He has, you know, he's filled out official forms, which are attesting to the fact that he, you know, is not making X amount of money or he's unemployed or whatever. And, you know, getting those benefits. I mean, he's he's submitted a form to the House of Representatives attesting to the fact that, you know, all of these facts are true to the best of his knowledge. So. It's hard. I mean, what's the defense? Like, they, you know, the Justice Department has the receipts, literally. Yeah, it'd be very challenging. I, you know, I think, uh, yeah, it's just the set of charges itself is very challenging for him. Obviously, prosecutors always love that evidence of, you know, a, a, spend, a spending spree, whatever you want to call it, you know, luxury items that the, the money actually went to. One thing, though, I do I do want to mention before we move on to the next topic, Asha, is one of the things I found very funny is Santos has been trying to play like the Trump playbook, right? He thinks that like he's going to, everyone's going to treat him like uh, on the right like they did Trump. He's like witch hunt and all this stuff. And, you know, he's trying to start it up and no one on the right's having it. Like basically Trump got a pass because he was Trump. He was president. Like they had too much at stake. So they had a, they felt like they had no choice but to roll with it. But like, they're not rolling with Santos. He he doesn't matter. Yeah. Trump in their, in their view delivers votes. That's why they can't alienate him. Yeah. Right. It's purely transactional. This is what it like. Trump mobilizes these 
freaking lunatics and they come out and vote for him or try to overthrow the government or whatever he tells them to do. Um, and so they're both afraid of that group and they also need those people to show up and vote because as their policies become increasingly crazy and extreme, there's more and more attrition. Um, so of course this impacts that, you know, they have to make the process even more, you know, rigged and constrained to, to keep people from voting, but they also really depend on that uh, group coming out to vote. DeSantos isn't bringing out anyone to vote. Literally, no one cares about this dude. Yeah, literally. Uh, although I will know. Except McCarthy. Elise Stefanik, apparently, I guess. She, <laughs> yeah, she and McCarthy, him. right? I think it's funny. McCarthy's not willing to throw him over the, you know, over, over, uh, overboard yet because he wants that additional vote. I guess it's that hard. Like, DeSantis is a reliable vote. It's hard to get the majority to past things he needs but yeah i mean it's their patience with them is very uh limited let's put it that way so renato after we recorded our podcast last week we almost re-recorded it because there was a big <laughs> news dump that night um about the verdict in the e Jean carroll trial now, it's really hard for me to actually believe that that was just one week ago because that was dominating the news. She got a very hefty damages award. And immediately after following that verdict, the very next night, CNN had a town hall featuring our favorite former president, Donald J. Trump, where he redefamed her and potentially... <laughs> Redefamed her. And it's like a and, new word. Um, in addition to making a few key confessions that could be relevant in a, in his criminal investigations, but in any case, um, potentially opened himself up to liability, I guess, on a number of fronts. So let's unpack. Yeah. So I guess it's a starting point. Obviously, it's a big deal that Trump was found liable for engaging in sexual abuse of E. Jean Carroll. I mean, I I view that as complete and utter victory for E. Jean Carroll. Um, there was some focus for a brief period of time that the jury did not find that she had um, been raped, but had found instead sexual abuse. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to know that in New York, New York law, uh, the definition of rape is very narrow. And also, I think what would happen, I think this is actually a good thing for Eugene Carroll in the long run, is that the jury was parsing the evidence very carefully, and they really credited her statements at the time to uh, friends in which, in contemporaneously, around that time, she was telling friends that there had been some, you know, a non-consensual encounter with Donald Trump, but she didn't use the word rape. And so I think they were crediting that uh, testimony to get her over the bar in terms of a burden of proof. The bottom line is, um, you know, it's, it was a perfect storm. She had uh, great lawyers and she um, presented a compelling uh, story. Her, the judge, I think, had some very uh, good rulings. And obviously Donald Trump sunk himself, as we talked about in his in his deposition. So yeah. very significant verdict. So, or, or judgment for her. So, so where, where do you go from here? Well, okay. Yes. He is continuing to defame her, you know, and why is that? And what does that mean? Well, ordinarily my usual. 
And can we can we just rewind and say what what it was that I mean he basically on the CNN town hall called her a liar again, made fun of her, made fun of her, said it didn't happen. Um, yeah. So I just wanted because there were a lot of people who didn't like. I mean, I happened to find out about this afterwards because I did not watch the town hall, but just in case people yeah. didn't watch it, I thought it was worth noting. I didn't watch it either. I watched the clips. I mean, you know, I got the gist. I watched the clips that people made of the key moments. I just, I've seen enough of Donald Trump. Uh, but in any event, uh, yeah. So he, look, that's awful that he did that. He didn't learn his lesson. And so the immediate reaction was, okay, is there going to be another lawsuit and so on? Now, my immediate response to that was different than a lot of commentators. I mean, it's very easy to get like a bazillion likes on Twitter if you're like, hey, yes. This is defamation again, and it is. There's a practical problem. In 99 out of 100 cases, there would not be another uh, lawsuit that's brought. Why? Because the millions of dollars that E. Jean Carroll was awarded makes her whole, compensates her for the damage that occurred up until the point of that trial. And so now any damage she has has to go forward right from that point. So there's not like the, it's challenging to prove like how you were damaged when the president of the United States called you a liar and all of that. And you've already been compensated for that. So like he called you a liar for the hundredth time and that, that right. what's the new damage, right? And lawyers are really expensive. Okay. I don't think the average person has any idea how much like a firm like Robbie Kaplan's cost, but I bet we're talking seven figures for, for that representation easily, multiple seven figures potentially. So. Going through all that again, and and by the way, it would have to be in the most likely in the district of New Hampshire because that's where that occurred. It wasn't like it even occurred in New York. So she, you know, the question is, could she go back mm. to the same judge? But an interesting thing happened. Robbie Kaplan, her attorney, uh, E. Jean Carroll's attorney, has come out and they're like saying they're seriously considering whether or not to bring another suit. Why are they doing that, and what's really going on? Well, I think there's a few things going on to explain why my why this may be the one case out of 100. One thing is, um, I think that they believe there's a strong chance that they could get punitive damages. So I think they, they're thinking that that would be their damages hook. It wouldn't be what I'll call what was called actual damages where like issues reharmed, but uh, the punitive damages are essentially a type of damage a jury can award that punishes. So is it, and, and with the theory of the punitive damages for him doing this within 24 hours, simply based on he's just being a jackass now, <laughs> kind of, I mean, is it just like, yeah, like he's, he's trivializing it. I mean, I don't know, like what, what, I think it would be that he's trying to, you know, I think the, the the argument would be there's been a judgment by the jury that she was sexually abused and that he defamed her. He's been awarded this judgment. And very shortly thereafter, he has re-victimized her by defaming her again and belittling her and so on and so forth. And I totally get that. I mean, I think that that's all true. Um, I still think that that's, uh, a challenge. Like if you just, if, if somebody is paying out of pocket, I just say this as somebody who is a partner at a, a mega law firm and does represents a lot of clients. Like that's the sort of thing. Like I would say to most clients, like, do you really want to spend millions of dollars in legal fees in the hope to get them back effectively in punitive damages? It's just something you're doing more for the principle of it. But I also think there's a chance 
And I, it's, I think it's clear that Robbie Kaplan thinks there's a chance that they could go back to the same judge and try to do it there until it eventually gets moved away and try to get some estoppel finding, essentially saying, we've already tried the case. We've already determined that he's, that he sexually abused her. So we don't need to go through all that again. That's a big deal because it reduces the cost tremendously. It also reduces the de- reduces the downside because you know there is a downside. If you had to retry the whole case again, it's not you can't yeah. be a hundred percent sure. And a different jury in New Hampshire wouldn't have a different result, right? So I also think my personal uh, take on this though is that it's actually being done for leverage. I think Robbie Ka- like right typically in a case like this there'd be a long appeal, and usually the parties would would settle. What would happen is Eugene Carroll's lawyers would go to Trump's lawyers and. Or vice versa, and they'd say, "Okay, we'll give you if you if you pay us seventy percent of the verdict now, we'll just you know we can we'll agree to you know waive the appeal, that sort of thing, to just get get that over with instead of fighting for years and you know incurring more legal fees." But Trump's not going to do that; he's going to fight till the end of time because this isn't about the money, and he doesn't care about that. Um, and so this might give them some leverage, like, "Hey, do you want to fight us again and again and again?" And so it gives them another chit at the table that they can use and say, you know, we're going to keep going after you. We're going to keep creating these headlines. We're going to keep creating this inconvenience. Um, we're going to keep distracting you. So I, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, but um, it's definitely um, a case where there's an upper hand. You know, people, a lot of our listeners would say that Trump Trump's never held accountable for anything. Well, he was. That he he abused Eugene Carroll many years ago. He defamed her, and he is going to pay the price for that. Or some, you know, and he is in the process of paying the price for that. Yeah. Well, the saga continues, <laughs> and I, you know, just given that we are, and by the way, if people are noticing that I'm wearing different clothing. I don't know if you're. Your outfit has it changed. It is not, because I go to the gym, this. and then I wear a hoodie, and so I always look way worse than you, Asha. So that's just, I always do generally work look way worse than you, but in particular on our podcast, if you're watching it on our YouTube channel, because I'm always like wearing a hoodie right after I get back from working out my trainer, and Asha always looks like she's whatever, ready to be Well, yesterday I was giving a talk, because I had on like a okay. blazer. You and look a, very, and a nice very dress. And today put I'm together wearing my and sweater professional. Hoodie. But we just had so much news this week that we had to extend our um, recording day because we wanted to make, get to the E. Jean Carroll trial. And I have to say that just to bring this full circle to the first story that we covered about the Giuliani lawsuit, you know, this is, I think the verdict is an important vindication for E. Jean Carroll in just having a jury just say that this happened. And I think that it is, I don't know, I mean, it's obviously the Giuliani lawsuit would have been in the works before this verdict came down. But I have to think that something like this helps encourage people to come forward. I mean, not necessarily lawsuits, but also just it, it goes beyond E. Jean Carroll, I think, is my point. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think another impact is shout out to the legislators in New York who gave women an opportunity to bring cases like this years later, recognizing that women don't always... Uh, uh, aren't always in a spot where they can report 
um, or, and take action right away when they've been the victim of violence or sexual assault. Um, and um, they gave her that opportunity. And I think it might inspire legislators in other states to consider doing the same thing and giving other women the opportunity to be vindicated and, as you say, to have to be heard and believed. Definitely. So Asha, uh, I we have the biggest legal news of all time. I mean, if Fox News is to be believed or Ben Shapiro or any of those people, John Durham emerged from uh, under a rock and issued a 330-something page report, which I'm sure you couldn't wait to read cover to cover. Yes, and I had my suitcases packed because I was sure that as a peddler of the Russia hoax, I was going to be arrested and sent to Gitmo, which is also something that I had, um, that Fox News had promised, you know. Um, I sure. think the Federalist released a um, extensive list of people who had peddled the, the Russia hoax. And um, I, I was pleased to see that I was in very good company. Um, all of those people, I would have been happy to... Uh, you know, bunk with and, and, you know, <laughs> do party with at, at Gitmo. Um, but, uh, unfortunately no one showed up. Um, and once I read the report, uh, I realized why no one showed up <laughs> because it turns out no one did anything illegal. Um, it was basically a long Federalist article. It with was like a, a long font. Federalist article. It was like uh, with with sad tuba playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah, you know. Um, wow. So look, this is a long report, and I really do have like limited emotional bandwidth to be honest with you. Um, I went down the rabbit hole during Durham's first case that he brought. So he brought. Two charges, two two prosecutions uh, in the four years that he did this investigation. Um, neither of them were against the FBI or anyone else in the deep state. They were random people no one had ever heard of um, outside the FBI. He had one guy who was a lawyer who supposedly lied. Yeah. Well, one Sussman was a lawyer, and then there was another guy, Igor Duchenko, who was a subsource on the Steele dossier. I, like I said, I mean, I, it was very um, in the weeds and uh, he charged them each separately with making false statements under the theory that essentially that they were peddling, you know, stuff that they knew were was false as in an effort to get the FBI to open this investigation. Um, and the subtext was that they were doing it kind of on behalf of the Clinton campaign. So, you know, there was this whole other narrative that they were trying to, he was trying to get in. Um, unfortunately for Durham, he got left out of court both times. Um, the jury acquitted uh, both defendants. And that was an amazing, I'll just say this as somebody's tried a lot of criminal cases. That's a, an amazing result. Okay. I, I, I was like, when I got an acquittal against the DOJ, I thought it was like, it's like a career moment. Like, it's such a big, <laughs> so hard. And my client was like literally actually innocent. I was very hard to convince a jury of that. Um, 
there's no joke. Um, and, and you're right about the laughing at a court. I think, you know, what I would say is like the judge, I believe in both cases or made comments as to why this case was there, why this case was being brought. And I think in one of them rebuked Durham for using the case to try to get in a narrative that Correct. really had nothing to do with the facts of the case. If That's I right. Correctly. That's right. It was, they were both, I mean, he had to do something. I don't think he could end this investigation without charging anyone with anything. So, I mean, in some ways, I guess he had to bring these bad cases. Um, and as you said, I think, you know, the Justice Department's policy is to not bring charges unless they are pretty certain that they can prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, which right. means that typically the evidence they have is like overwhelming, which is why I'm sure it's hard to secure an acquittal uh, for a client if you're up against the Justice Department. And so um, basically, you know, these were two losers and uh, two loser cases, I guess. Um, but anyway, so he has to, under the special counsel regulations, produce a report at the end, which explains his decisions for charging um, and declinations to charge. Same thing. We saw this in the Mueller report. Um, this in, I can't believe this report was actually almost as long as the Mueller report, given given the substance. It's kind of crazy. Well, the substance, yeah. I think there is, you know, it's a very, uh, my, I think there's a very interesting contrast here in a number of respects. You know, you made a statement, which, I, and I totally agree with you. I get what you're saying, that, like, he couldn't do this. He couldn't finish this without charging somebody. But, like, you know, that, that really cuts to the core of what a prosecutor is all about. Prosecutors, it, you have an immense power that you have, and you're supposed to exercise it with restraint, and you're supposed to, you know, um, ha, you know, have this discretion. And Robert Mueller, in my mind, was the epitome of that. I mean, I know a lot of our listeners are, you know, sick of him or very disappointed in him. One thing I admired about him, and I just, I can't criticize about the guy, is like he's shown he showed an extraordinary amount of restraint, right? Like he had Trump on the. Uh, obstruction of justice uh, counts. He did something I wouldn't have done, but he went overboard to try to show, like be super fair to the guy and say, look, I'm not going to render any sort of conclusion. Um, there are, I think there were a number of cases that he potentially could have charged, but he, he charged winners and with one or two exceptions um, where he was charging, like I think a, a Russian uh, entity and so forth. You know, he he was enormously successful. Lots of guilty pleas and verdicts. He won they won a trial against Manafort, Stone, and others. Very significant results out of that investigation because I think he was very careful, judicious, and thoughtful about what he charged. He was also careful about the language in his report. Uh, you know, I I I, I often am teaching young lawyers how to write, and I use the Mueller report sometimes as an example because I think it's one of the finest pieces of legal writing that I have seen. It is extraordinarily well-written, and the amount of care and craft that went into it is very significant. And when you compare it to the Durham report, I mean, it's really something. You know, One thing that Mueller did that I think had an impact was, you know, Mueller refused to use the word collusion because it didn't really have a legal meaning in this context. He used a higher standard of conspiracy in criminal law, which was much harder to prove. And, and that was correct legally to do, you know, but Durham's out there saying, oh, there's no evidence of collusion, which is just like a, a Fox News talking point. It's not a legal conclusion at all. I mean, there's just a number of times through his report where he betrays 
that his real goal is to sort of make headlines, not to do anything legal. There's another point where, you know, he has this whole section about his quote observations. What, like, what's that about? I mean, prosecutors don't make observations. You right. either charge people or you don't. A very problematic report in general. And I think really, if you actually take the time to read it, which is clear, a lot of right-wing commentators have not, um, I think you, you see something that, you know, I think, you know, a Federalist article is a better comparison. It's, it has more in common with a Federalist article than it does with the Mueller report. Yeah. It's a rambling mess. It is a it is a real rambling mess. Like there's like I, I it's very hard to follow. There's no clear roadmaps, you know, legal writing with roadmaps. That's what something that the Mueller report did. So here's what we're gonna tell you, and here's you know, systematically. And this is just sort of all over the place. It seemed to me to be a lot of filler, like um, you know, kind of laying out like writing out all these FBI policies or whatever. Because one thing that this was the implicit charge was that he was supposed to cast doubt on the entire basis of the Russia investigation. Correct. This was, has been the talking point since the beginning that this was not a properly predicated investigation. And so he does a lot of sleight of hand in terms of, um, so first of all, what, what one thing that, I thought was interesting is, you know, we've been hearing for years this allegation that the Russia, the crossfire hurricane was opened because of the Steele dossier. Right. This is clearly not the case. And this report makes that abundantly clear that this was opened because of information that was provided to the FBI by the government of Australia because one of their diplomats who, by the way, I understand is a leading politician or like someone close to the right, the conservative party in Australia. Like, in other mm -hmm. words, this isn't like, you know, some yeah, ally some of, the, of the Clinton campaign. Yeah. Um, what overheard Papadopoulos bragging that he knew that, you know, Russia may have dirt on Hillary Clinton. Um, which showed that he had advanced knowledge of uh, the fact that they had obtained these, um, the, this hacked information. Right. Um, prior to that, the DNC server had been hacked, and it had been attributed by the intelligence community to Russia. Uh, there were people who were being appointed to Trump's campaign that were on the FBI's radar as people who had been targeted by Russia. Um, Carter Page and... Paul Manafort, mm -hmm. who had connections. So all of this is, you know, you look at this whole thing in context, but what Durham does is he pulls out that tip from the Australian government, by the way, acknowledging once and for all that it was not open based on the Steele dossier, but he basically says this was not enough to open a full investigation on. And he goes on and on and on. You get to 200, page 295 uh, of 306, and he says, basically, like, I'm not saying that there shouldn't have been any investigation at all. I just think it should have been a preliminary investigation, not a full investigation and, uh, you know, limited to George Papadopoulos. It was just a very like splitting hairs, like weird thing that comes very much later after he's already muddied the waters and he weaves in the steel dossier in some other way and basically produces a hot mess that gives 
enough for, I think, the right-wing ecosystem to pull out little pieces and claim victory. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that, too. I mean, first of all, for something that didn't have anything to do with the opening of the investigation, he nonetheless spends a ton of time talking about this. A ton of time. It's also worth noting that a preliminary investigation can become a full investigation. Correct. I don't think he, he denies that. Also, though, it's worth noting a lot of what, what he talks about there was already laid out by the inspector general. And the inspector general found, you know, looked through all the same stuff. And who's, I'd say, a very well respected uh, individual who was very critical of some decisions mm-hmm. the FBI made, but nonetheless found that the full investigation was appropriate to open. And I really viewed his report more as his own spin on the inspector general investigation. That's really what I took it to be like, here's my spin. Here's my opinion on the uh, inspector general investigation. And I just, I don't really view that as a proper prosecutorial function. I just view that as, you know, he's really trying to be inspector general 2.0 and offering Mm. his own spin on it. But, but, you know, it, it does serve an important function to me. One thing I will just make sure everyone knows because a lot of people listening to this may not follow this, but, if you follow all the right-wingers on Twitter or if you go to their websites or TV shows, they are treating this as if it is the biggest thing ever. I mean, one of the big refrains was that they were talking about is this is bigger than Watergate. This was a coup, oh this sort of thing. And these are headlines that they probably had prefabbed, stories they had ready to, to go out before the report came. And I think it's just that, just like the clips in the Jim Jordan committee that we, you and I have talked about, Asha, that where it's like, hey, the whole point of the clip is just to give something that looks official. Like, let's put a Fox News guy as a witness. So now it's a government testimony as opposed to just some guy in Fox News saying it. This is similar. It's like, okay, let's put our Fox News guy writing a 300-page report with a seal from the DOJ so now we can advance these narratives. Yes. And there, there's stuff in there that is simply misleading and inaccurate. Like there's a whole section, for example, where he talks about how the FBI never gave a defensive briefing to the Trump Trump. campaign. And I I saw some right wingers like quoting from that. They did give a defensive briefing in August of 2016. It's been reported on the 302 that was written or whatever the EC that was written by the agent is has been published and and declassified. They didn't specifically tell the Trump campaign that they got a tip from the Australian government. Right. But they did say you you are going to become, or if you're not already, a counterintelligence target. Like, and here's here's what that looks like, and here's why that's bad. And please report any strange outreach or contacts to us. I mean, they did do that. Um, but he makes it sound like the FBI did not give the campaign a fair shake. He also mischaracterizes the covertness with which the FBI conducted its investigation as sort of, you know, nefarious when at some points he acknowledges that the reason they were doing that was because they were trying to avoid impacting the election. Mm -hmm. They were conducting a counterintelligence investigation And had they gone and 
announced to whatever, 50 people that, hey, you know, looks like the Russian government is targeting you and that became news, like that would have been more detrimental to the Trump campaign. I don't really understand like what what his point is. The reason they were doing these confidential sources and stuff is trying to stay under the radar, which by the way, gets to his last point, which is they treated Hillary Clinton more favorably than they did Trump. I mean, and this is just laughable. Yeah, that is his big his big argument. Uh, I'd say a big thesis. It it's is interesting because, of course, Hillary Clinton's campaign was in many ways uh, destroyed or you know undermined by the FBI. Yeah, exactly. What he does is he latches on. He, you know, he he ended up going through like all the CIA's files, and somewhere in the in the bowels of the CIA, he finds uh, in a report of. Russian intelligence analysis, in other words, you know, Mm -hmm. are obtaining analysis done by the Russian intelligence services that says that Hillary Clinton plans to stir up a scandal about Trump being connected to Putin. Mm -hmm. He acknowledges that the intelligence community was not able to verify the accuracy of the substance of that and believe that it could be potential disinformation that mm-hmm. was put out there. Right. However, his argument is they didn't run down that lead, but they ran down this Australia mm-hmm. on diplomat lead. And by the way, how do we know? He, he called that Russian intelligence the Clinton campaign plan. Like he basically gives it full credence. And mm-hmm. he says, you know, did they ever think that the the tip from the Australians could be a part of the Clinton campaign plan. Like it's just this weird conspiracy theory, and just ignores the fact that you had two candidates, one of whom was vocally sympathetic to Russia in a very unusual way, and that combined with all the other factors made that a more combined with the source of the tip made it a more credible allegation to look into. Well, also, I think it's an important, another important thing to keep in mind is that there was a very substantial hack um, and release yes. of information that it, it sure looked like a foreign power had something to do with, right? And there, you know, I've, whether or not you credit the Russia, if you're listening, that sort of thing, nonetheless, there was, uh, I think, a very, you know, that event, I think, also lends credence to concerns about Russian interference or at least foreign interference. And they had attributed that to Russia, I think, by June of that year, before they opened the investigation into Crossfire Hurricane. Anyway, I mean, we're touching on a lot of different things, which to our listeners might be like, I can't even keep up. Like, what are you talking about? And that's basically how you feel after you start reading this. Yeah. And that's really his purpose. I mean, one thing that's, it's just, it's a a frustrating thing. I mean, I've really kind of held back, Ash. I I considered like writing threads and trying to convince people. And it's just like, I don't think anybody who actually is paying a lot of attention to the Durham report is interested in facts and interested in being convinced of it. No, I think you're right. So, Renato, before we go, you mentioned that you're always coming back from your workout before our podcast. And I think, like, very early on, we talked about our, um, you know, our exercise routines. But I'm curious what you're up to these days as we head into beach season. 
Yeah. So I, you know, I moving, I moved out to the suburbs a couple of years ago. And ever since my weight went up, I, cause I look, I live uh, in a house with a teenager. There's always a lot of bad things around. And I was not, I was away from my trainer. I had a trainer in Chicago who helped me lose a ton of weight. And I used, I would see him five times a week when I was in Chicago. So living out in the suburbs, didn't have him. Uh, and so now I'm like decided I'm getting back in shape. And so for the last several months, I work out with uh, a personal trainer mo- most mornings. Um, and I'm doing like lots of um, uh, like stuff really focused on like movement muscles too, just trying to get a lot of functionality in my core and lower part of my body. So I'm like always moving. I have like a, a disease that makes it hard for me to move sometimes. So I it really... I'm working hard on that. So it's been good. I'm getting results, not as fast as I'd like, uh, maybe because I can't, especially with traveling with work, I can't uh, control completely what I eat. But it it definitely means that I am half uh, exhausted or out of breath or sweaty or whatever when we're doing these podcasts. Yeah, that's interesting that you do it in the morning. So I joined, I rejoined my gym in January, um, after, you know, whatever, it's been three years almost, uh, since COVID. Cause I had been doing a lot of home workouts. Yeah. I see. You've seen that online. Like you were like doing, I can't, I don't have that. I, I do a, like, I do a crappy job. I like give it like a 10% effort when I'm doing my own workouts. I think, I mean, I think maybe. I give it more than a 10% effort, but definitely I can feel that I'm making more effort when I go to the gym. Partly Same. because I do a lot of classes, so I, I do like kind of these turf classes where you're doing, you know, um, kind of hit type of workouts and with weights and, and things like that. I've also started doing spin once a week, and I oh. just well, I hate spin. Like I find riding the bike to be the most boring freaking thing. And it's uncomfortable. The seat hurts my butt. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. It's just, it's, it totally hurts it's my butt. It's uncomfortable, all the time. but I sweat more and burn more calories doing yeah. that than any other exercise. So, what I do is I force myself to just go on Mondays and do the spin. And then I kind of feel like I've done my hardest thing for the week. And then everything else is sort of um, downhill. And the other thing that I've discovered is. I've abandoned trying to work out in the morning. What? Okay, I, I have to work out in the morning because I come up with excuse. If it's later in the day, I'm busy at work. I got this going on, that going on. I just make excuses. I don't do it. Well, my gym, and this is why I rejoined it, is on my way to and from work. And I feel like mm. my mental energy and focus is the best in the morning. And that is that is just a more uh. a better time for me to do things like writing or record our podcast or, you know, do the things that require my mental and intellectual energy. And then I can zone out. And because I do classes, I just kind of go in zombie-like and I just do whatever they tell me to do. Well, that's definitely me. I I do whatever I'm told to do. I need somebody screaming at me, telling me to do stuff. Like that's, that's, I don't enjoy it. I'm just candid. I don't really enjoy working out. I do. I've done tons and tons of it. I don't, I mean, I do high intensity interval training. I've done all that, but like, it's just now something needs to tell me what to do, and I'm half asleep in the morning, so it works okay. It wakes I'm, me up. I'm half asleep too, and that's like part of it is that by the time I have my coffee and kind of get to like, if I were to work out, my day wouldn't start until like 
11. And then at that point, I'm kind of the, the good time for me to write and do all those things is sort of starting to fade. So, um, so I've just learned some little hacks to kind of maximize like my personal, you know, um, rhythm in a way. Yeah, we'll have to talk about. We'll talk about next week. Like what I think as you get older, you get better at understanding yourself and like how to hack your own life to yes. sort of accentuate your strengths and disguise your weaknesses. A yeah, bit. I read a lot of productivity books, so cool. That was the one thing where I just kind of like gave up on stuff like waking up at five in the morning and trying to work out immediately after you get. A, I was like, this is just not me. It's not happening. So. Well, there you go. I made it work for me, but not me either. MSW Media.